This episode contains descriptions of violence and murder. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. The following is from A Strange Christmas Game by Charlotte Riddell. My dear reader, you are doubtless free from superstitious fancies. You poo-poo the existence of ghosts and only wish you could find a haunted house in which to spend a night, which is all very brave and praiseworthy. But wait till you are left in a dreary, desolate old country mansion filled with the most unaccountable sounds. Good evening, everyone, and welcome back. I'm Alastair Murden, and this is Haunted Places Ghost Stories, a Spotify original from Parcast. In this series, we reimagine ghostly tales from some of history's greatest authors. The following version is our own unique take. It may feel familiar in some ways and different in others. We hope you enjoy it. You can find episodes of Ghost Stories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Today's story is loosely based on a strange Christmas game written by 19th century English author Charlotte Riddell, or as she was known by her pen name, Mrs. J. H. Riddell. Unlike many authors of her day, Charlotte managed to support herself and her debt-riddled husband with her writing. But it was perhaps the ever-looming fear of poverty that inspired her to write today's tale. A strange Christmas game centers around siblings John and Claire Lester, who have struggled financially all their lives. But as Christmas approaches, they receive an inheritance from a distant uncle who bequeaths them a massive country estate. This life-changing fortune seems like a true Christmas miracle. That is, until they realize it's more like a Christmas curse. Coming up, a doomed inheritance. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. It was a frigid, snow-dusted December day in the English countryside, but I was drenched in sweat. Hacking through the dense brambles that overtook the manor's walkway was an exhausting chore. 
I took a break to stretch my back and take in my new home, a sprawling, desolate mansion. It was terribly neglected and falling apart, but it was mine. Well, ours. My sister Claire weeded the overgrown garden close by. She paused to wipe her sweat-soaked brow and smiled at me. I knew exactly what she was feeling because I felt it too. That, despite the back-breaking labor the place required, it was thrilling to finally own something. Our fortune had changed days before when our distant relative Paul Lester died and left us Martingdale, the family's country manor, in his will. Paul was a complete stranger, so his benefaction came as a shock to both Claire and I. But it couldn't have come at a better time. Just a week ago, I'd been unable to pay rent on my tiny, rat-infested London flat. Now, I was the owner of an estate. I could hardly believe my good fortune. The nearby church bell chimed, reminding me of the hour. We had dinner guests arriving soon. Uncle Paul hadn't lived in Martingdale himself, but instead employed Mr. and Mrs. Boyd to caretake the property. We'd invited them for dinner in the hopes of learning more about our new home. Claire and I served the Boyd's dinner in our dust-covered dining room. I cut the turkey while Claire doled out the Yorkshire pudding. I'd expected the Boyd's to come with a handy list of tricks and quirks about the home, but they barely said a thing for much of dinner. Finally, my inquisitive sister blurted out, So, what can you tell us about this place? The Boyd's exchanged a look I couldn't decipher. After a moment, Mr. Boyd simply said, It's been in your family for generations. I didn't know what to make of his caginess. It seemed like a change of subject was in order, so I commented on a large oil portrait on the wall. In it, a young man smirked arrogantly at us. But this seemed to make the Boyds even more tense. Mrs. Boyd replied that it was Jeremy Lester, our distant relative. She explained that Jeremy had owned the estate before Paul, but died in his youth, without a wife or heir. And then, under her breath, she added, a scoundrel and a gambler. Mr. Boyd shushed her, but Mrs. Boyd appeared ready to open up. She explained that Jeremy had lived at Martingdale during its heyday and whittled away much of the family fortune by gambling. But Jeremy was mostly remembered for his disappearance. Surely you've heard the story, Mr. Boyd added quickly, apparently eager to change the subject. But Claire and I shook our heads. This strange bit of family history was news to both of us. Mrs. Boyd continued. This Christmas Eve will be 41 years since he was last seen, but Jeremy himself has been seen plenty since then. Mr. Boyd shot his wife an imploring look, which she ignored. Claire and I glanced at each other. Then my sister spoke the words we were both thinking. What do you mean, he's seen plenty since? Mrs. Boyd replied, His ghost, dear. Jeremy haunts these halls. My stomach twisted. It wasn't sensible to believe in the supernatural, but truthfully, I'd always been terrified of ghosts. 
The suggestion that Martingdale was haunted made me consider my new home with a new feeling. Dread. A quick look at Claire told me this news had the exact opposite effect on her. Claire's eyes were wide as she hung on Mrs. Boyd's every word. Before my dear sister could inquire further, Mr. Boyd abruptly stood. He said they'd come to dinner as part of their final duty, but frankly, they were done with the house and didn't wish to stay another moment. He ushered his wife out. But as they departed, Mrs. Boyd lobbed one final warning. Just stay away from the parlor, especially as Christmas draws near. And then they were gone. I turned to Claire to find she was nearly bouncing with excitement. She said we had to look in the parlor right away. I protested loudly, but Claire snatched the oil lamp from the table and ran from the room. Seeking out a ghost was the last thing I wanted to do, but I couldn't just let Claire go alone, so I hurried after her. When we reached the parlor, we found the door boarded shut. I encouraged her to take it as a sign, but Claire managed to find a hammer in an adjoining room and proceeded to pry the boards off the frame. The door creaked open and we peeked inside. Despite four decades of neglect, the room was almost cheerful. Dusty Christmas decorations still hung on the windows and garland was strung across the mantel where two plush couches flanked the old brick fireplace. And best of all, a large piano sat grandly in the back of the room. My God, Claire whispered. It's like it's never been touched. I was just as enraptured as she was, and for a moment, I forgot about Mrs. Boyd's warning and hurried over to the piano. I banged out a classic Christmas carol, but the instrument was out of tune and its keys were gummy. The result was an unnerving, clunky tune. Footsteps suddenly echoed around the room, so loud that they shook the piano. I stopped playing and immediately turned to Claire. We exchanged a nervous look. The stomping grew more forceful, as if someone was storming around the parlor inches away from where we stood, but no one was there. Mrs. Boyd's warning rushed back to me all at once. My pulse raced as a dreadful certainty took hold. There was something dark in this room. All of a sudden, chaos erupted around us. Portraits fell from the walls and candlesticks soared across the room. A large table flipped over, landing with a thud. Furious, indiscernible screams ripped through the air. It's Jeremy! I cried in terror. Claire appeared frozen, caught between fascination and horror. I yanked her toward the exit, but the door slammed in our faces, locking us in. I frantically pulled on the knob, but it wouldn't budge. Try the windows! Claire screamed. I did, but they were stuck to the sill. The ghostly trampling around us grew faster. We backed toward the door, but our movement wasn't quick enough. A shock of pain shot through my toes as an invisible, leaden foot stomped on top of mine. I could feel my bones crack. My chest rose and fell as I began to hyperventilate. This evil was going to bludgeon us to death. But mercifully, the door swung open and we spilled into the hallway outside the room. 
We scrambled to our feet and took off. Claire led the way, with me limping behind her. I barely slept that night. I was sure every creak was the rampaging ghost coming to pummel me to death. But Claire was fascinated. The next morning, she returned to the parlour to get another glimpse of what we were certain was Jeremy Lester. She returned to the breakfast table, disappointed and confused. When I asked her what she had seen, she replied, her voice low, The room was in perfect order, like nothing had torn it apart at all. I was perplexed, but hopeful that we'd imagined the entire ordeal. But that night, stomping footsteps and screams echoed through the house. I hid in my room while Claire investigated the parlour. She told me she stayed outside the door this time, but reported the same scene. Objects flying every which way and those bone-chilling screams. The days passed and Christmas drew near, and with it, the nights grew more unbearable. Each evening around midnight, the whole house shook with the ghost's fury. I desperately wanted to leave Martingdale, but Claire always the pragmatist, reminded me that we didn't have any money or anywhere else to go. Christmas Eve finally arrived, and though we were sleep-deprived and trembling, we were determined to make it special. We had always managed to celebrate, even in our leanest years, so we gathered around our shabby tree and lit a fire. Claire prepared hot cocoa as I shakily hung our stockings, we exchanged gifts, a bird feeder for her and a scarf for me. When I unwrapped it, Claire took my hand and smiled. Your real gift is intangible. John, I'm going to figure out how to put Jeremy's spirit to rest. And we will finally live in this house in peace. I desperately hoped it was possible. After our cocoa was drunk and our dinner eaten, I leaned back in my chair, listening to the crackle of the fire. I dared myself to imagine this home without Jeremy's bone-chilling rampages, just me and Claire happily converting these dilapidated halls into a home. This peaceful musing relaxed me, and soon my eyelids grew heavy. A short time later, I awoke to the sound of cards shuffling from somewhere in the house, Across from me, Claire stirred awake. She'd heard it too. It was coming from the parlour. Claire immediately jumped to her feet and rushed down the hall. I reluctantly followed her to the door and peered inside. I almost didn't recognise the room. The parlour looked brand new. No cobwebs or dust to be seen. The old shabby holiday decorations were cheery and vivid, and the piano gleamed in the corner, sparkling from the light of the hearth's roaring fire. Two men sat at the table playing cribbage. But not just any men. These two shimmered in the firelight, their forms translucent and misty. One of them wore the same smug expression as the portrait that hung in our dining room. I gasped. We were finally staring at Jeremy's ghost. And then he looked straight at us and screamed. 
coming up, Jeremy's ghost exacts his revenge. Pinocchio, Sleeping Beauty, The Little Mermaid. They're all iconic Disney movies. But did you know the original versions of these stories did not end with a happily ever after? Hi, I'm Alastair from Parcast, and I'm hosting a new Spotify original called Once Upon a Time. For nine weeks, we're commemorating the 120th anniversary of original Imagineer Walt Disney's birth by lifting the curtain and comparing some of your favorite Disney stories with their earliest tellings. Once Upon a Time will chart Disney's career triumphs, as well as the crushing defeats that almost ruined it all. We'll also look at what it took to bring these stories to life and why Disney's adapted versions became so memorable across generations. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Once Upon a Time. Listen free and exclusively on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. Every muscle in my body tensed in fear as Jeremy's ghost screamed, staring at Claire and I. But just as I was about to run, he turned his rage toward his opponent. Jeremy yelled, You're a bloody liar, a bloody cheater! And hurled a chair at the other man. Claire and I jumped out of the way just as the chair shattered against the doorframe where we'd stood. I grabbed Claire's arm, but she yanked away from my grip and whispered, This is our chance. Jeremy is about to show us why he disappeared 41 years ago. And if we stay long enough, perhaps he will give us a clue about how to lay him to rest. I flinched as Jeremy flipped the cribbage table, screaming obscenities at his opponent. And then he stomped toward us. I steeled myself, certain he'd finally seen me and Claire. But he strode past without a word and disappeared down the hallway. Claire quickly followed. Claire, please, it's too dangerous, I hissed. But she was gone. I remained frozen in fear. My attention turned to the other spectre, who was oblivious to my presence. The man was unfamiliar, but had a very distinct face. A dark purple birthmark covered his entire left cheek. Like Jeremy, he appeared to be young, but hardened. A clash of metal came from behind me. I spun around to find the sharp tip of a sword inches from my face. I yelped and jumped back. Jeremy hovered in the hallway, his ghostly form brandishing two swords. My heart thundered. He was going to kill me, and I didn't see Claire, which meant he may have done her in already. He snarled. Choose your blade, but know that the other 
will kill you. Claire appeared from behind Jeremy and grabbed my hand. At her touch, I felt a surge of relief. That's when I realized Jeremy had again been addressing his opponent. The other man approached and chose one of the swords. Jeremy then sneered. Let us go outside. I'd rather not spill your blood on the carpet. Though I wanted nothing more than to flee from this place and never return, Claire convinced me that we were too close to an answer to give up now. So we followed the ghostly men as they wound down a moonlit, snow-covered path just outside the estate. I huddled close to Claire as we went, trying not to look at the eerie, otherworldly shadows dancing around us in the dark. We could hear carolers in the distance, and I found myself longing for the cozy Christmases of our poorest years. We finally arrived at a forest clearing on the outskirts of the property. Jeremy counted steps to measure the ground for their duel. Then he turned his back on his opponent and said, On my count of three. One. Two. But Jeremy never reached three. His opponent plunged his sword into Jeremy's back. Claire screamed. Jeremy stumbled toward us, shock etched on his face. His boots slid on the slick ground and he fell, driving the sword deeper into his flesh. He lay there, twitching, his blood blooming a vibrant red against the pristine white snow. Then, as the light left his eyes, both ghosts faded into obscurity. Snow fell and flurries swirled around us. I shivered violently, still unable to process what I'd seen. I looked at Claire. She stood staring at the spot where Jeremy's body had been moments before, stunned. Then she looked at me and spoke. I think I know what we have to do. Back at the manor, the house was eerily quiet. In the wake of Jeremy's violent tantrum, it was as if we could hear a pin drop in the silence. Claire and I huddled by the fire, discussing what we'd just seen. Claire speculated that Jeremy's ghost was out to avenge his murder, and he wouldn't rest until we'd brought his deplorable backstabber to justice. While I'd been skeptical of her detective work, I couldn't ignore the merit of what she was saying. I knew we'd been shown a glimpse into our ghost's inherent need, and for the first time in a long time, I was hopeful we could be rid of him. But how? Church bells rang out, signaling midnight mass and the beginning of Christmas Day. I sat up and turned to Claire. Nobody knows more about the afterlife than priests, I said. I looked at Claire and saw her eyes sparkle. I knew my sister well and could tell she'd had the very same thought. We had to talk to a preacher. Midnight mass was already underway when we arrived at the little church near Martingdale. We snuck in the back of the candlelit chapel and sat in the last pew. We were so far from the pulpit, I could barely make out the elderly priest. As he sermonized about redemption, I wondered what had become of Jeremy's killer. The service ended 
and the chapel's candles burned low. Claire and I waited for the parishioners to file out. Finally, we were alone with the priest, who still stood at the front of the church. I trailed behind Claire as she rushed up the long aisle to the pulpit. In the near darkness, she introduced us both to the priest. She told him everything about the weeks of haunting, the ghostly duel, and ultimately, Jeremy's grisly murder. The old priest listened intently, his mouth set in a grim line. I watched his face as Claire spoke and was suddenly gripped with the most peculiar deja vu. There was something about this man that felt utterly familiar. When he spoke, it was not to offer theological advice. He simply asked if we'd gotten a good look at the killer. What a strange question, I thought. That's when the priest turned his face toward the candlelight. I felt my blood run cold. On the priest's left cheek was a distinct, deep purple birthmark. The same mark as the ghostly murderer we just watched kill Jeremy. I gasped and jumped back, pulling Claire with me. The priest saw our fear and came toward us, a flash of panic in his eyes. He ordered us to be calm, but how could I? It was the middle of the night and we were alone with a murderer. I took Claire's hand and we ran, not slowing until we were outside the church. But as we fled, a thought occurred to me. I stopped short. Claire tried to pull me along, her panic palpable. But I just realized we'd found exactly who we were looking for. What if he's the only one who can help us? I asked her. He knows where Jeremy's body is, and you said it yourself. Jeremy won't rest until he brings his deplorable backstabber to justice. Before Claire could respond, her eyes shifted to something over my shoulder. The priest stood behind us. But away from the eerie candlelight, he no longer appeared so sinister. Instead, he just seemed pitiful. He pleaded, Whatever you need me to do, please, I want to help. I have lived with my guilt for far too long. Claire and I shared a look. As always, we didn't need to say anything to know what the other was thinking. I turned to the priest and told him to follow us. When we arrived back at the clearing, it was peaceful and quiet. Freshly fallen snow blanketed the ground. The priest led us to a mature pine tree and lifted an arthritic finger to its trunk. There, etched into the bark, was an old carving of a cross. He revealed that this was Jeremy's final resting place. Claire and I bowed our heads, taking a moment of silence to honor our long-dead relative. The priest pulled a prayer book from his robes and read Jeremy's funeral rites. But before he could finish, the flat edge of a blade appeared, pressing against the priest's windpipe. An enraged, spectral Jeremy stood at his back, choking him with his sword. Jeremy's eyes were wild, his lips a lethal sneer. His singular, deadly focus was on the priest. 
Claire jumped in to pull Jeremy off of his victim, but her hands passed right through him. I watched helplessly, unsure how or if we could intercede. Just as I prepared myself to watch a man die before my eyes, the old priest managed to choke out a plea. You were right. Jeremy froze, then released the sword. The priest dropped to his knees, gasping for air as he sobbed out his confession. He had cheated at the cribbage game all those years ago. He was sorry for that and for stabbing Jeremy in the back. He'd carried the guilt around for 41 years, and now he was finally ready for Jeremy's retribution. <gasps> Go ahead, the priest whispered. Whatever punishment you feel is fit for my sins, I am prepared to receive it. Then, a true Christmas miracle happened. I watched incredulously as Jeremy stared into his killer's tear-filled, remorseful eyes, and then he slowly stepped backward and faded away. The night was quiet once more, save for the sound of the priest's relieved sobs. That night, Claire and I returned to the manor and took in the quiet house. The once cold, terrifying estate was completely transformed in its silence. At last, Martingdale felt like a home, our home. This inheritance had seemed too good to be true, because it was. There's no such thing as a Christmas miracle. You have to earn your gifts. And we finally had. England has a long-held tradition of telling ghost stories at Christmas time. It's a custom that dates back centuries. In fact, it may be older than Christmas itself. Prior to the cozy holiday we observe today, some European cultures celebrated Yule on the winter solstice. Perhaps because it was the shortest, darkest day of the year, revelers believed the boundary between the living and the dead was at its most permeable. As a result, sharing ghost stories on Yule became an integral part of the holiday's customs. When Christmas replaced Yule as the dominant holiday of winter, the Christmas ghost story was born. Charles Dickens' 1863 classic, A Christmas Carol, is perhaps the most well-known story in the genre. But there were many others, including Charlotte Riddell's A Strange Christmas Game, published in 1867. Charlotte endured a lot of hardship in her life. After losing both parents by the time she was 24, she found herself married to a man with poor business instincts. He nearly plunged them into bankruptcy, and when he died, he left behind a mountain of debt. Charlotte therefore relied on her writing as a means to survive. Undoubtedly, the bumpy rags-to-riches trajectory of the siblings in A Strange Christmas Game reflected aspects of her own financial struggles. In this story, Charlotte Riddell masterfully spins an auspicious success story into a chilling, haunting tale. 
Her characters, Claire and John, had a difficult upbringing followed by a promising turn of fortune. Jeremy's haunting is certainly terrifying, but it's also a lesson. Nothing is free. It turns out, you need to make your own miracles happen, even on Christmas. Thanks again for tuning in to Haunted Places Ghost Stories. We will be back on Thursday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Ghost Stories and all other Spotify originals from Barcast free exclusively on Spotify. See you on the other side. Haunted Places Ghost Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Kerry Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Haunted Places Ghost Stories was written by Janelle Malik, with writing assistance by Kate Murdoch and Alex Garland, fact-checking by Claire Cronin, and research by Mickey Taylor. I'm Alastair Murden. Walt Disney had a gift for storytelling that resonated with audiences. From a puppet who wanted to become a real boy, to a mermaid who yearned to be part of the human world, Disney has developed relatable and unforgettable characters. Hi, it's Alastair from Parcast. Join me for Once Upon a Time, a special collection of Parcast episodes celebrating the original Imagineer himself as well as the origins of Disney's most iconic characters and stories. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast once upon a time and catch new episodes Mondays free and only on Spotify.